Hey, take just a second. Don't be seated yet because we're about to pray, but just turn around and greet some folks. It's great to see so many of you here today. Turn around and say hey to somebody. Welcome them in the name of the Lord. Let's join together in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. As we approach this holy week, a week where we remember what Jesus did for us, when we could not do it for ourselves, when we were dead in sins and trespasses, when we were lost, Jesus came. And he became the perfect Israel, he became the perfect man, he became the new Adam, he became everything on our behalf. He became the author and the finisher of our faith. And this morning we declare our faith in this room, in this city, before the nations, before the world, we declare our faith in Jesus Christ. He is king and he is exalted. Father, I thank you for this Lenten season. I thank you for a time where we focused on you anew. I pray that that is happening, God. If maybe we've had struggles there, maybe if we've fallen down on our commitments, God, I pray that it would be renewed this week, that we would focus during this Passion Week, during this Holy Week again on Jesus Christ. I thank you for our young people that were up here singing this morning, our kids. God, I just thank you for those who work with them. I thank you that generation after generation will proclaim your name. In fact, one generation will proclaim your name to the next. I thank you for everything that you've done, God, in this church. And today I ask that you would speak. On this Palm Sunday, God, I ask that you would speak to us anew, that we would hear something afresh from your spirit and in our spirit, God, I pray you would have your will and your way today with us. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we exalt your name, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would call us back on Good Friday. That we would come back into this place, God, and we would focus on what Jesus did for us on the cross. The man of sorrows, the one who laid his life down for us because he loved us. But God, I thank you that that's not the end of the story. I thank you that Resurrection Sunday morning is coming and was coming 2,000 years ago, God, that Jesus didn't stay dead in that grave, but he rose again victorious. And we get to celebrate that, and we get to take part of who he is and what he's done. God, I pray for those who may be afar off right now. Lord, we're surrounded by them. As we pray this morning, as we worship this morning, all over this community, there are people who don't know you. They're just going through life, Maybe life has them beaten down. Maybe they're searching for something to fill that void in their life. Maybe they're using drugs or they're seeking after sexual pleasures, God. Or maybe they're trying to find success in career, God. I don't know what they're using to try to fill that void, but we know that Jesus is the only thing that can fill that void. And God, we pray that you would use us to reach them. 
Lord, I thank you that your church is plan A on this earth and there is no plan B. So God, use us. Lord, if we just come in here and worship on Sunday morning and we say that was good worship and that was a good sermon and I enjoyed that service so much and we leave and we're not changed and we don't do anything about it, God, then we have missed the boat. Help us not to miss the boat this week. Put somebody in our hearts, put somebody in our minds that we can invite, that we can bring to church next week as we celebrate the resurrection, God. If, if they don't see Jesus in us on Resurrection Sunday morning, I don't know if they'll ever see Jesus in us. And so God, use us, we pray, and prepare their hearts. Break up the fallow ground. Break up the hard hearts, God. And Lord, we just pray that you would use your church to grow your church. We thank you again. We praise you for Jesus and all he's done for us. It's in his precious name we pray these things. And Rushwood said together, amen. You may be seated this morning. You know, I try to share something, uh, something good with you every Sunday morning. And I didn't know what I was going to share this week, but last night I was on Facebook and one of my former professors, um, a guy named Ronald Selleck, who... Anybody who ever had him loved him. He was just a great professor, brilliant man, uh, very dry wit, just a great guy. We learned a lot from him. And he put a post on Facebook, and I thought, wow, that says it so perfectly. I just feel like I need to share it with the church. And uh, I don't know if you guys know, if you're keeping up with what's going on, but around the world, a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ are under persecution right now. We're enjoying the comfort of coming in here, and we don't feel endangered to come in here. Yeah, there might be somebody that thinks less of us for being a Christian or less of us for coming to church, but we're not in danger coming in here. We don't think police are going to burst through the doors and arrest us. We don't think there's anybody around who is uh, you know, really going to try to take our lives or anything like that at this point for being a Christian. But around the world, that's not the case. We have a lot of brothers and sisters. You may have kept up with things in Nigeria where Islamic extremists are taking the lives of Christians. Hundreds of them are losing their lives right now. In China, uh, there has been a renewed policy against Christians, and, and the church is coming under persecution in a way that it's not come under persecution in a long time there. And I actually, in America, in some spots, our brothers and sisters who are trying to live Christian lives especially as they're not going with the cultural winds of the day, are finding persecution, fines, threatens of, threatening of imprisonment, other things that are coming to them. And we think it won't happen here, but I can tell you that it certainly may, and it probably will eventually. And so my professor, Ron Selleck, who, uh, again, uh, poured into our lives, those of us who had him, and, and just touched our lives, this was his Facebook post yesterday, and I thought it was so worth sharing with you. This is what he wrote. He said, Easter's coming. If we are surprised by the world's hostility to biblical faith, we've not been paying attention. We've been warned. John 16, 11, in the world you will have trouble, but be not dismayed for I, that means Jesus, for I have overcome the world. God turns the worst people and their deeds into the greatest means of advancing his kingdom. His ship sails in every wind for and against. Of those who seek to overthrow God's law with man's and silence all who dissent, we ask with Peter, who shall we obey, you or God? 
Let any try who like, they cannot roll back the stone. Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. I thought that was a perfect, perfect way to put that. So if you catch flack for being a Christian, if you run into some, here it's usually mild persecution. If you lose friends, and by the way, I think if you're a real Christian, you're probably going to lose some friends. If you became a Christian and you didn't lose any friends or you didn't have any relationships that changed because of that, maybe you didn't become a Christian. I don't know. But I think most of the time when we come to Christ, there are some relationships that sever because we're going a new direction. We're going a new direction. All things have become new. We're a new creation. And maybe there's some people who were walking the path with us who can't walk the path with us anymore. And that's okay because Jesus is worth all of it. Jesus is worth all of it. So I just wanted to remind you in this world where we have trouble that Jesus has overcome the world and he is indeed risen. If he's not risen, we're of all men to be the most pitied, but he has risen. And next Sunday morning, we're going to come in here and we're going to proclaim that at a loud level. I hope that's okay with you. I hope that's okay that we vocalize that next week. Don't come in here sad next Sunday morning. You can come in here Friday and feel kind of somber because Good Friday is a somber day. But don't come in here next Sunday morning sad and downcast and looking like you've been sucking on a lemon. Don't do that next Sunday morning. Next Sunday morning, come in here ready to worship God and to exalt his name because Jesus is risen. And we're here to proclaim that loudly. Proclaim that loudly. And by the way, bring somebody with you. Next Sunday morning, we're going to have our, our, it's kind of become a tradition around here. I don't know if it's a tradition that we'll continue every year, but we've done it for the last few years. We're going to have a hot dog lunch. Not because necessarily we just love hot dogs, but that's a way to invite people to stay and to hang out with us a little bit. And then we're going to have an Easter egg hunt for kids. And so invite families that have kids uh, to come and join us next week. It's not about the hot dog lunch. It's not uh, about the Easter egg hunt, it's about people coming to know Jesus Christ and being connected to the church and being connected to the salvation that he offers. So please invite somebody for next Sunday. That's your job. That's your assignment this week is to invite people to come with you. Friday, Good Friday service, Sunday morning. We got some folks going to be baptized, and I love that. That's a, such a wonderful day. The worship team has amazing things planned for you. It's going to be a great Sunday in the Lord. So you don't miss it and bring somebody with you. It's good. It's good. Well, today, church, we have come to the last of the miracle stories in our series, The Seven Signs of John. Have you enjoyed this series? I hope that you have. I've enjoyed preaching it. Greatly enjoyed preaching it. And today we're going to talk about one of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever did. That was the raising up of Lazarus. The raising up of Lazarus. What a great story. Raising Lazarus from the dead. Probably no other miraculous sign that we have studied so far has the power of this one. And it speaks to our condition and it speaks to the salvation offered in Jesus Christ. Just outside of Jerusalem, in the town of Bethany, lived Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These were two sisters who lived with their brother. And they were close friends of Jesus. Jesus and his disciples often visited the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the Bible tells us that Jesus loved them and they loved him. He was close to them. They were some of his best friends. But one day Jesus wasn't in town. One day Jesus wasn't in Bethany where they were. And Lazarus got deathly sick. 
We're going to pick up in John chapter 11. If you want to turn there with me or if you want to look on your phone, by the way, I don't see very much difference, although I love to have a paper Bible where I can make notes and underline and, and do all that sort of thing. But if, if you're looking up on your phone the Scripture, that's great. As long as you have the Scripture in front of you, we'll also have it on the screen for you to help you out in case you don't have paper Bible or digital Bible today. But this morning, and as we go to John chapter 11, I'm going to teach you through the story, kind of like I did last week. It's, it's a long scripture, so we're going to go into the scripture and then into some teaching, back and forth. We're going to be kind of in that pattern. I'm going to try to draw some points from each section of scripture today. But we're in John chapter 11. We're going to begin at the very first verse of John chapter 11. And God's word says this, A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later performed the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. You guys remember that story? If you remember the story of Mary pouring the expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair, that's in the next chapter. But there's a dinner, and what happens in that story is there's a dinner given in Jesus' honor, and that's when that takes place. Why did Mary do that? Why did Mary pour expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus and to wipe his feet with her hair? It was very simple. She loved Jesus. She loved Jesus and she wanted to show him that she loved him. Got a question for you this morning. When is the last time you have shown Jesus that you loved him? I mean, gone the extra mile. I'm not talking about just showing up to church on Sunday morning. And if you really, really love him, you show back up again on Wednesday night. Or, you know, you've gone and you've checked out the sermon again on Facebook during the week. And by the way, thank, thank you to you guys who do that and share that. That's a wonderful way to get God's Word out there. But, and you've read your Bible every day and you've prayed, you know, which is what we're... That's baseline. That's what we're basically supposed to do. When's the last time you went above and beyond to show Jesus you loved Him? When's the last time you did something extravagant? And that's not my sermon today. This is just a little aside. But when is the last time that you went, went above and beyond and said, Jesus, I'm doing something different for you. I'm going to show you. I, you when, when have you taken time? You've just said, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to take an hour, and I'm going to spend an hour praying and talking to you. Because you know God loves it when, he, when we talk to him. Kind of like grandparents, man. Grandparents love when grandkids come over and spend time with them. That's why my wife and I, we use that to get babysitting sometimes. But anyway, love for the grandkids to come over and talk to them and spend time with them. And they just, they just love each other and their love is lavished on each other. God's the same way. He loves when we spend extra time with him. Or maybe, when, maybe you've just said, you know what, this morning I don't have a lot to do, so I'm going to put on some worship music and maybe I'm not the best singer in the world, but I'm just going to praise you, Jesus. I'm just going to lift up your name in song. I'm going to worship you and I'm going to praise you. By the way, God inhabits the, pra the praises of his people. His spirit inhabits the praises of his people. When you praise, things change. But when's the last time you said, I'm just going to spend some time praising you? Or you know what, I don't have a lot going on today, so I'm just going to drive out in the countryside, and I'm just going to go to a secluded spot, and I'm just going to get along with my Bible. And I'm going to study. I'm going to study what you said, Jesus. I'm going to learn more about you. When's the last time you've become extravagant in your love for Jesus Christ? If you can't remember the time, maybe now is a good time. As soon as you can. As soon as you can, get alone and love Jesus and show him that you extravagantly care about him and love him. Mary's brother Lazarus was sick, the word says. 
So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Remember last week we talked about the man born blind and how the disciples had come in and said, Jesus, why was this man born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus said, oh, y'all got it all wrong. It's neither one. It's not that he sinned. I mean, how could he sin before he was born? So that's not it. And it wasn't his parents either. He was born blind so that God might get the glory out of his blindness, get the glory out of his healing. That's why he was born blind. And so Jesus says again, Lazarus is going through this so I, so Jesus can get the glory from this situation that Lazarus is going through. You know, I was thinking this morning, I have a good life. God has blessed me with a good life. Hey, can you say that this morning, that God has given you a good life, that you're blessed? I think a lot of times we, we don't think we have a blessed life because we have comparison problems, and, and comparison steals joy so many times. And so we compare ourselves to like Bill Gates, or we compare ourselves to some famous actress or movie star, or somebody like that, or, or singer or whatever, and we say, oh, man, our lives are just, you know, not so great. I saw Kimball Walker uh, plays for the Charlotte Hornets, and they, they say the Charlotte Hornets may let him go, but if they decide to re-sign him, they said they may re-sign him to a deal worth about $270 million. And I said, shoot, I'd play, I'd play for like $27 million, $2.7 million, $270,000. I mean, I'd play for a lot of those numbers, right? And you say, man, look at all the money this guy stands to make compared to my life. But really, I have a good life. God has blessed me with a good life. But, you know, there's some things I think, man, if, I was, if things were just a little bit different, if God had just given me a little more of this ability, or if I didn't have this issue or this thing to overcome, man, things could be so much different, and things could be so much better. But I believe that sometimes God puts things in our lives or allows things in our lives that are hardships so that when, it, when we overcome those hardships, with His help, He gets the glory. He gets the glory. The things that we have to go through, as we overcome them, God gets the glory from that. Jesus gets the glory. And so Lazarus has the toughest one of all. He's going to die. He's, his sickness is going to end in death. But Jesus is going to help him overcome that. And because of that, Jesus is going to get the glory. God is going to get the glory. God's Word says, So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Don't you hate when God does that? You really, really need him. Right now, God, I need you right now. I need you to show up right now. And God says, no, no, I'm going to stay right where I am for a couple of days. I'll get, I'll get there. I'll get there. You've got to trust that I'll get there. You've got to have faith that I'll get there. But I'm not coming right now because I know what needs to happen here. I've got a plan, and it's not necessarily your plan. How many of you know that, that your plan is not necessarily God's plan? Okay? He doesn't always act on what we want him to because he's God and we're not. So although he loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. And finally he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? And the reason they were trying to stone Jesus is he had said, that he, was, he used the word I am, he used the phrase I am, the, the name of God, the sacred name of God, to describe himself. And so they knew what he was saying. By the way, people will tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God anywhere in the Bible. 
Those people are dumb. Jesus claimed several times that he was God all throughout the Bible. That's why they were going to stone him. It wasn't because he claimed he was a rabbi or a good teacher or anything like that. No, he claimed to be God, and that's why the Jews wanted to take him out. So it's all in there. It's just not in those words. There's nowhere you can find where Jesus said, I am God, worship me. But all throughout, that's what the Bible is teaching in context. And when we understand what it's teaching, Jesus was claiming all the way through to be God. Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is a danger of stumbling because they have no light. Now, verses 9 and 10, what I just read, they're kind of a confusing portion of Scripture. It can be kind of hard to understand what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is basically saying is this. Just like a day has 12 hours of daylight and you're not in danger until nightfall, Jesus was saying that his life had more daylight left. And he was not going to die until he had completed the work that God had given him to do. That's what I truly believe about my life. I am not going to die. The Lord is not going to allow me to leave this earth until I've completed the work that he's given me to do. If I walk with him, if I follow him, if I'm devoted to him, then when, I, when the Lord lets me leave this earth, then I completed the work he gave me to do, but it will not happen until then. I heard one pastor say, I'm invincible until the Lord's through with me. Until the Lord's through with me, nothing can take me down because he has his hand on me. And that's what Jesus was saying in these verses. Verse 11, then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I go to wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. Boy, the disciples are dense so many times, and here it is again. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. And Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. Boy, he's, you know, optimist right there. The point, main point of that section is Lazarus really was dead. Now, we have a sister church in Chapel Hill, you know, where the God's favorite basketball team plays. Um, but we have a sister church in Chapel Hill, and the name of the church is Love Chapel Hill, which I love the name of that church because the name of their church is also their mission statement, to love Chapel Hill. And they do a whole lot of work with the homeless folks over there. They, they meet downtown in a theater and they have had, had great inroads into that community. But they work with a lot of the homeless folks. And so as that church was getting started just a few years ago, uh, one of the homeless guys they were working with, his name, and I don't think this is his real name probably, but the nickname that he went by was Taz, kind of like the Tasmanian devil. So Taz was a member of this church or a part of this church, and they'd been working with him. And so they worked for him a while, got to know him. He loved coming to the services. He showed up on Sunday mornings. He showed up when they had Bible study. Taz became kind of a fixture of Love Chapel Hill. But as they continued on, all of a sudden, Taz just stopped coming, just kind of disappeared on them. And so they got worried about Taz, and they started off asking some of the other homeless people, you know, what's happened to Taz? Why isn't he here anymore? Why don't we see Taz anymore? And so finally they came. One of the homeless people said, we think he's died. We think something happened to Taz, you know, we think he's passed away. That's what we're hearing, word on the street, literally, is that Taz has died. He's, he, he's no longer with us. And so they said, man, you know, he was such a fixture of the church and everything. We need to have a funeral. We need to have a memorial service for Taz. 
And so they, they, I'm not sure exactly what they did, if they had pictures of him or whatever. The pastor could tell you that whole story. But anyway, they had a memorial service, and people came in, and they shared their memory about Taz and some of the things that they knew about him, some of the things they appreciated about him, and they, they played some songs, and they prayed, and they cried, and they mourned Taz, you know, and they had this whole funeral service for Taz. And so then they got back to doing their normal thing. They got back to church Sunday morning, Wednesday night Bible study, all that sort of thing. And all of a sudden, one Sunday morning, Taz walks in. Taz is not, the rumors of Taz's demise were greatly exaggerated. Taz was actually alive. He'd just been out of town for a little while, and they had their own information. So, of course, what did they have to call him from then on? Tazarus. Tazarus became his name. And Taz obviously was not really dead, but the point of this scripture is that Lazarus was really dead. Lazarus really had died. He really was deceased. He was dead. He was in the tomb. His life had ended. But God, I want you to understand this. This may be the most important thing I say today, or at least one of them. God does not see death like we do. God does not see death like we do. We see death as a period. God sees death as a comma. He sees that the end, what we think is the end, is not the end. And I know there's some of you here probably recently, not recently within the not-so-distant past, you've lost loved ones. I know that you have. That's tough, man. That's a tough time in life when somebody you love, you see them go the way of the grave. It's so tough to see that. It's so tough to be a part of that. I was just talking to somebody this morning whose grandfather is going through dementia, and my wife lost her mom to dementia a few years ago. It's just tough to watch that process, the dying process, and then the finality of everything. And we see it as the end. But Jesus says, look, they're just sleeping. If they're in Jesus, if they know him, if they, if they have the eternal life that Jesus has offered, that's not the end. They're just sleeping. They're just sleeping, and Jesus sees it a different way. God sees death a different way. And so I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning, if you feel like you've lost a loved one and that's the end, it's not. If they know Jesus Christ and you know Jesus Christ, then it's just the beginning. It's the beginning of eternity. This life, the book of James says, this life is, life is like a vapor. You ever go outside on a cool morning in the fall and you breathe? And you see your breath come out of your mouth and then you see it just disappear. The book of James, the, the writer James says that's what life is like in this world. It's here and then it's gone. It's like the green herbs that, that, that grow up in the morning in the summertime and then the hot sun beats down on them and they wither by noon. That's what life is like on this earth, but God doesn't see it that way. God sees this life as just the beginning. You know, it was a popular saying a couple of years ago. It was on t-shirts and everything. YOLO. You only live once. The Bible says that's not true. The Bible says that's not true. This life is just the beginning, and we're going to spend eternity with God or apart from God, and that's a choice that all of us have to make. But God sees death differently than we do. Jesus saw the death of Lazarus differently than everybody around him. The Word of God, John chapter 11, verse 21. Lord Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here... My brother, I'm sorry, I skipped something I need to teach you real quick. Let me go back. John chapter 11, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus had only been a couple of miles away the whole time. 
And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Do you know, Jesus left Lazarus in the tomb for four days. Do you know that there is a biblical historical reason for that? The Jews believed that after you died, your spirit hung around your body for three days. The spirit did not leave. The spirit did not go into the afterlife for three days. For three days after you died, your spirit stayed and was connected to your body. But on the fourth day, it was over. Your spirit left, and there was no chance of resurrection. There was no chance of reviving. On the fourth day, it was done. Jesus waited until the fourth day because if he had come on those first three days, the Jews would have said, well, of course. The spirit was hanging around the body, and, you know, it's very possible. But on that fourth day, it's impossible. Jesus came to show that the impossible is possible in him. That's why Jesus waited. That's why Jesus didn't rush back to immediately revive Lazarus. He waited so that God would get even more glory. Back to the verse I was reading ahead of time. John eleven twenty one. Lord said, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. I love Martha's faith in that. She was upset, she was hurt, but she still said, I know even now, Jesus, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her these great words, these wonderful words, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Shortest verse in the Bible, at least in English, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. By the way, a good English teacher would call that foreshadowing, by the way. Verse 39. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. So it's hot. The body is rotting. It's implied here that it's hopeless. This situation is beyond hope. Verse 40, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. 
When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Some have said that if Jesus didn't say, Lazarus, come out, everybody in the tombs would have come out. All the dead people would have risen. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but he specified, Lazarus, come out. And I do know that immediately Lazarus lived again. What an amazing miracle. You know why it's amazing? That's the miracle we're all looking for. All of us are looking for that because all of us know if we're aware, and we don't like to think about it, we don't like to focus on it, and it's kind of overwhelming to focus on it sometimes. But unless the Lord returns, unless he takes us home, we're all getting out of this place by the way of the grave. All of us have a grave in our future. I say it bluntly sometimes just to try to wake people up. There is a day coming, unless the Lord returns and you're found in Christ and you're taken home with him, there's a day coming where you're going to turn cold and you're going to turn blue and life is going to leave your body and they're going to lower you down into the ground. And that has to be dealt with. The grave is a problem for all of us. That's why this miracle captures our attention. That's why this miracle is so powerful is because we're looking for something to overcome the grave. If you could live in good health, if you could live with the mental faculties you have now, if you could live with the abilities you have now, and I offered you eternal life, and I would say, you know what? Peak optimum health, everything good. Would you like to live for 80 years? You'd say yes. If I said, would you like to live for 100 years? You'd say yes. If I said, would you like to live for 140 years? You'd say yes. If I could stay in good shape, if I could be in peak health and everything, yes, I'd want to keep living. There's no date where you'd say, yeah, I want to die. If we could be healthy and whole, we'd want to keep living. None of us want to go the way of the grave. And so the grave is a problem that we have to overcome. And this verse, this scripture points to the fact that Jesus can help us overcome our grave problem. So what does the seventh sign of John actually teach us? I want to give you three points. Three points real quickly that I believe this seventh sign of John actually teaches us. The first thing we need to know is Lazarus is all of us. Lazarus is all of us. I already mentioned the shortest verse of the English Bible is John eleven thirty five, 35, where it says, Jesus wept. And it's kind of confusing. Why? And by the way, let me explain what weeping is. Weeping is not just a tear rolling down your face. It's not just your eyes getting watery at some emotion. No, weeping is you are crying. Weeping is your red face. Weeping is tears are flowing down your face. You may even be crying out. We would call it in the South, bawling. Somebody's upset. They're crying. They're weeping. It's deeper than just a slight mourning. It's a deep mourning. And you say, why in the world did Jesus weep over Lazarus? He was about to bring him out of the grave. He was about to bring his life back. I mean, why was he crying so hard over Lazarus? I think there's a reason for that. It, it, the Bible tells us Mary, who Mary loved Jesus, where we see in the next chapter again how she anointed him with, with perfume and her hair, wiped his feet with her hair and all of that. Uh, she loved Jesus deeply. And when Jesus saw her crying over her dead brother, here's what I think. I think, Jen, this is my theology, this is my, my, my theory on it, but I believe that Jesus, when he saw Mary weeping over her dead brother, Jesus looked back to the beginning of humanity and he saw Adam and Eve. He saw fallen humanity. He saw people who God had created to have a relationship with that they would live forever and they would enjoy him forever and they would enjoy their time on this earth forever. God saw fallen man who was broken by sin and death was never supposed to enter this world. 
We were supposed to have eternal life from the beginning, but because sin and death had entered this world, things were broken. And I think when Jesus saw Mary weeping over her brother, he thought, wow, that's all of mankind. That's what I'm here for. That's what I've got to change. That's who I'm here to rescue. And I think that's why he wept. I don't think it was just over Lazarus. Yes, I believe it was over Lazarus, but I believe it was more than that. I believe Jesus saw all of us in that tomb. And he knew that we needed a way out. He knew that we needed rescue. So the first thing I want you to hear this morning is Lazarus is all of us. We are all dead, born dead in sins and trespasses. If we went through the Ten Commandments, because a lot of times people anymore, they don't think they're a sinner. They don't think they've done anything wrong. We explain sins away anymore. Oh, that's not really a sin. And we just, you know, we, we find a way to rationalize everything. But if we just go through the Ten Commandments, if we just start with the first one, have no other God before me. There ever been a time, ever been a moment in your life where you put some God, something before God? I know I have, and I know you have as well. We could just keep going. Has there anybody, ever been a time where you dishonored your father and your mother? Has there ever been a time where you stole something? Has there ever been a time where you bore false witness against your neighbor? You didn't tell the truth. I mean, we're just going through a, a few of them there. And as we go through that list, we know that we are guilty. We know that we are born in need of a Savior. We're born in sin. We're born in broken relationship with God. We know that we're all born going to die. We all have the grave in our future. We're all Lazarus. We're all in need of Jesus. We're all in need of a resurrection. And that's the first thing. The second thing you need to know is Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus died so that we might live. I'm not going to read the rest of the story, but if you read on the story of Lazarus, it was the resurrection of Lazarus that really stirred the Pharisees up against Jesus. They saw how powerful Jesus was. Not even death could stop Jesus. And so when Jesus resurrected Lazarus out of the grave, it says that the Pharisees made up their mind, the Jewish leaders made up their mind that they had to get rid of Jesus. He was too powerful. He was too spiritual. He was too godly. And they were afraid that people in the nation of Israel would start to follow Jesus and then Rome would come down and totally crush Israel, totally crush Jerusalem. And they said it would be better for one man to die than for the whole nation to suffer the consequences. And so it was actually the resurrection of Lazarus. It was actually Jesus bringing Lazarus out of the tomb that made them never stop Never quit trying to destroy Jesus and to kill him and to take his life. Literally, quite literally, Jesus died for Lazarus. He died so that Lazarus might live. And he's done the same for you and he's done the same for me. Broken in sin, I've already proved it to you briefly, that we were, broken, we were born broken in sin. We were born separated from God. We were born in need of a Savior. But here's the amazing thing. How many times did Jesus sin during his lifetime? None. Jesus never sinned. I had one, uh, a young man one time in Sunday school class say, but Jesus got mad and he kicked over the, the money changers' tables. But no, that was righteous anger. That was a good, Jesus never sinned. There was not a moment, there was not a second, there was not a millisecond that Jesus did not do the Father's will. He was perfect. He was the perfect man. He was the perfect Jew. He was the Messiah, the anointed one sent by God. And yet he took that life, that perfect life, and he laid it down on the cross for us. He took all of our sins on him so he could put all of his life on us. That's what Jesus did there at the cross. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says, When we were utterly helpless, utterly helpless, 
Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus laid his life down for the whole world. Not part of the world, the whole world. Jesus came to save all mankind. Now, not all of mankind will be saved because not all of mankind will accept that gift. But he came to offer that gift to everyone. Everyone has a chance to come back to the Father through the perfect act of sacrifice that Jesus made. And so Jesus came to die for all of us. Third thing you need to know from this scripture. Jesus died so that we might be set free. Jesus died so we might be set free. Do you notice when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, he's not out of the woods yet? I'm mixing metaphors there, but you, you notice that? He comes out of the tomb and he still has bandages around his head and he has grave clothes on and he's bound up. And I, I've seen some people even say that Lazarus came out of the tomb like that. I don't know. That had to be hideous. But anyway, I had to illustrate it. He came out and he was not totally free yet. I want you to understand that when you get saved, God still has a work to do in your life. We have their churches, their teachers out there, their people out there who say, when you're saved, you're good to go. You got everything you needed at that moment. And in a way you did, but there is a process of growth that God wants to bring into your life. It's called sanctification. It's called being set apart. It's being set free. When you're saved, it's not as if the moment you're saved... All of your problems are over. All of your struggles are over. No, God wants you to be set free from those things. In that process of sanctification, we grow in grace and we move from glory to glory and we become more and more like Jesus Christ as we go through our lives. Process of sanctification. He wants, you to, he wants to set you free from the smell of death. He wants to set you free from those grave clothes. He wants to let you be free and be like Jesus so you can run in confidence and you can run in holiness. Oh, there's a word that a lot of us are afraid to hear or preach anymore. Holiness. Not holier than thou. Holiness. True holiness is simply this. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and you love your neighbor as yourself. It's not something you look down your nose because you know it all came from Jesus anyway. But God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be righteous. Boy, I'm going to go there. He doesn't want us to just have a sinning religion. I hear people say, oh, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace, which in a sense is true. But do you really want to be identified as a sinner? No, I want to be identified with Jesus Christ. I want to be set free. I want to grow in holiness. I want to live for him. I want to reflect him. That's why, I'm about to take a different trail here, but that's why a lot of people won't come to Jesus because we have a sinning religion. I'm a Christian. God set me free, but I'm going to live just like you. And they say, I can't believe that. You're saying the God of the universe has taken up residence in, in you and nothing changed? You act just like me? I can't believe that. And you know what? They're right. When God comes in, we should change. Change. I mean, be different, right? We should be changed. We should be more like Jesus. You say, Brent, I don't like what you're preaching. Well, I can't help it. It's what the Bible teaches. We're supposed to grow in sanctification. We're supposed to grow in righteousness and holiness. And God wants us to be set free. Whom the Son sets free is what? Free indeed. We're actually free to run. We're actually free to live for him. Last week we had a song, I'm free to run, I'm free to dance. 
Now, I grew up Wesley, and we wasn't supposed to dance. But the Bible's full of people dancing and praising the Lord, so I guess the Bible overrules the Wesleyan church. At least in my mind, it does. I'm free. I can't dance. But if I could, I'd be free to dance, free to run, free to live for him, free to worship him and praise him. I don't want sin besetting me. I want to get free from that so I can run my race with confidence and others can say, there's something different about that guy. About to preach this morning, but we got something else to do here. He wants us to be set free. To end today, I had a video picked out. It was a powerful video. I love testimonies. I've told you before that people can dispute everything, but they can't dispute your testimony. They can't dispute what Jesus has done for you. And, and so I had a video picked out, and it was a great video, and it's about a, I showed, showed a very similar video a few years ago, and that's how we were going to end today. But as I was kind of looking back over my sermon, I felt like God spoke to me and said, Look, you got some people in your church can testify. You don't have to use a video on that one. And, and as I was praying, it didn't take but just a second that God laid a young lady on my heart to give her testimony. And y'all, I've never even heard her full testimony before. But I just, I, I believe that God's up to something this morning. I believe it's going to speak to somebody. And so Cindy Green has agreed to come and share her testimony to end the service today. And Cindy, you can come on up. And I love this because God put me and Cindy together in 2001. I was her eighth grade art teacher. That's how we met. And a few years ago, she called me up, or actually I think she sent me a message on Facebook and said, I'm, I'm going to get married, and me and my fiancé would like for you to do our wedding. And I said, I'll be glad to. I just require six counseling sessions beforehand. And a lot of times when I say that to my former students, I never hear of them again. Um, but when I said that to her, she said, we would be honored for you to counsel us before our wedding. And so a few weeks later... She and Brandon came to church for the first time, and a few weeks after that, Brandon gave his heart to the Lord for the first time, and God has just been working, and I truly believe he set it up many years ago. So I'm just going to get out of the way because I think God's going to work through this young lady this morning and what she shares. You pray for her. This is not easy. This is not easy, and I put her on the spot. It was just two or three days ago I sent her the message and asked her would she do this, and she prayed about it, and she said yes. But Cindy's going to share her testimony with you this morning. And I think you're going to see how God can resurrect a life. Let's give your attention to Cindy this morning. Um, I'm not going to lie. When Brent first asked me <laughs> to come up here, I was very, very hesitant. Um, there's some parts of our testimony that are really easy to share. And those are usually the good parts. <laughs> and there are some parts we don't like to talk about. <laughs> I grew up in church. I knew God my whole life. Um, that doesn't always protect us from things of this world. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've never actually shared my full testimony with anybody except for at our life group a couple weeks ago. Um, I was born into a very broken family. Um, there, was, there was some abuse. There was a lot of fighting. A lot of uncertainty. I saw a lot of things as a child that I probably shouldn't have. Um, 
at the age of six, my mother and I fled from California where we were living at the time. It was, I don't know, sometime in the middle of the night and we drove all the way to Asheboro, North Carolina where my mother's family was living at the time. Um, it was a very scary night, just left, drove for three days and three nights until we arrived here. Um, and that helped for a little bit, but of course life has a way of catching up with you. Um, things started again, and although I was born a very healthy baby, the older I got, the sicker I became. Um, along with everything that was going on in our family, my health began to decline very quickly. By the time that I was in middle school, my immunity was completely shot. If there was somebody with a bug or a virus within a mile, I was sure to get it. Um, by the time I was in high school, I was on eight different medications daily. Um, things that kind of masked the symptoms but never completely took everything away. Um, we went to every doctor, to every specialist. Nobody could figure out what was going on. Um, along with this, very quickly, my mental health began to decline. I became a very sad, a very anxious teenager. Um, and then things in our family just continued to get worse. Then come a day, my freshman year, um, I decided that I was tired of not being in control of my life, that I wanted to gain some semblance of control. Um, and I knew I couldn't control what other people did to me, but I could control what I did to myself. So for the first time when I was in a freshman in high school, I decided that I was gonna cut myself. Um, I had seen other people do, and I thought, well, why not? And let me tell you, if you're somebody who has ever self-harmed, don't fall for that trick. Because you are not in control, you never will be. Um, it became something very, almost addictive. What began as one small little cut on my arm quickly escalated to something deeper and bigger escalated to me burning myself, basically doing anything I could to hurt myself. You see, I had grown up in church, and I knew that suicide was a big no-no. So I wasn't going to kill myself. Um, although I'm not going to lie to you, I really wanted to. I remember there was times that I would just lay there and think, God, why? I mean, I've been hurting for so long. I'm so tired. I'm so done. Just... You know, it'd be great if I just fell asleep and didn't wake up tomorrow. That'd be really nice. Um, along with this, I started experiencing what I recognize now to be spiritual oppressions. Um, there was a, I don't even know what I would call it, a being or somebody. Doctors said it was just hallucinations. Um, but this being soon became my friend. It was somebody who I could talk to. Um, and of course, it became something very <laughs> oppressive. Um, the deeper and deeper I fell, the scarier and scarier things got. I remember one 
there's a couple incidents, but one particular incident in which I would sort of lose control and I would hurt myself and then I would scream. I was in the other room and my little brother at the time, we're 11 years apart, ran into the room along with Brandon who I was dating at that time. And I looked up to see the look in his eyes and he looked down and made eye contact with me and then looked down to see my arm which was completely covered in blood. And I just saw the fear in his eyes and it just broke me. I began to really, I couldn't divide myself with my family. I was falling farther and farther away from God. So I began to define myself, to find my worth through academics. I was academically inclined and I was like, well, if I can just make the grades, if I go to a good school, I will have succeeded. I would have made something out of my life. I went off to college, and for the first time ever, I was away from my family, the conflict going on there, my boyfriend at the time. And I went to a very liberal school. <laughs> um, so I was all of a sudden by myself in a very liberal town, and I fell the furthest I've ever fallen from God. I stopped coming to church. I didn't read my Bible. I would pray occasionally. And things just got worse. My sophomore year in college, I ended up not only really hurting myself, but for the first time really considering killing myself. And I ended up being hospitalized for quite some time. Then there came one particular night. I had had this horrible dream in which I had seen myself hurting my family. And see, I could hurt myself, that was okay. But I would never touch my family regardless of everything that happened. And I went up to my mom and I told her, and I just told her I was so scared because what would happen if one day I did lose control and I hurt them? I found out many, many years later that night, my mother, who has always been a woman of very strong faith, got down on her knees and prayed what had to be the hardest prayer for any mother to pray. She said, God, I have been praying and praying for you to heal my daughter, and you haven't. And I don't know why, but Lord, if she's going to lose her soul, then I'd rather you just take her. That very next day, my mom had a coworker who came up to her and said, hey, have you ever heard of biofeedback? I just went and they were able to, you know, help me out with some things, with some things going on in my health. My mom came and talked to me about it and we're like, well, at this point, why not? You know, we've been to every specialist. I was getting sicker and sicker. I could maybe eat once a day. I was constantly in pain. I became so weak that walking from here to the and to, to the doors would have been a struggle. Um, so we decided to go, we made an appointment and we went. And um, I remember when I got up, sh um, the lady looks at me and goes, has anybody ever told you you might have food allergies? I'm like, no, I've never heard that one. She goes, yeah, and there's one that keeps coming up, gluten. So we're like, right, what's that? Um, so we started doing some research. I immediately started cutting out gluten. Within two weeks, I was feeling so much better. 
within six months, my health was just flourishing. And within a year, I was completely off my medication, all my medication. Um, we, came out, we came to find out many years later, by the way, I was 21 when we found this out, um, that I actually have something called celiac disease, which is actually an autoimmune disease. So this whole time, my body had essentially been attacking itself, and apparently, if left untreated, can lead to death. Um, my health was restored. We got married a year later. Um, but of course, I still continue to struggle with a lot of my mental health. Um, there was a particular phobia that I struggled with with a really long time. And I was sitting one day, um, I was in grad school at the time, and I was sitting there, and I just was overcome with it. And I remember thinking, God, please, you've healed me. I know it's possible, but Lord, I really need you to break the rest of these chains because I can't, I can't live like this. I can't live in fear. Um, at that time, I would drive back and forth from school, and there was this long country road I would take, and all of a sudden, I just became overwhelmed, and I just felt the need to pray. So I pulled over on the side of the road. The windows were open. The sunroof was open, and I just prayed, and I just completely gave myself back over to the Lord. I recommitted my life, and I said, Lord, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done living in the past. I'm done living in pain. Lord, you have healed me. I want you now to just heal my soul. From that moment on, my life changed. I, I began to define myself as being loved by God, um, not as somebody who was sick, not as somebody who came from a broken family, just somebody who was loved by God. And he, since then, he has done so many things in my life. There's been things that have been slowly, like Brent said, it doesn't all happen at once. It was slowly things have changed. And now if I could look back if I could talk <laughs> to that girl in high school at that time, I would tell her, it's going to be okay. It's going to be amazing, actually. The life that you're going to have is not even anything close to what you, you can imagine. The happiness that God will give you when you commit yourself to him is nothing that you can ever imagine. And you just kind of have to hold on. And I did. With God's help, with a praying mother, I got through it. Not only did I get through it, but I know now, and it was funny, because I had no idea what Brent was going to preach, but I wondered why are you wanting me to tell this story, and I realize now all that, as hard as it was, was so that one day I could stand up here and tell somebody and his name be glorified, and I thank God for that, and I will every day. As we move into um, our last song for worship, um, please know that the altar is open if you need to come and accept Jesus as your Savior. Um, the altar is open if you just need to come up here and talk to him. If you want to come up here and praise him, the altar is open.
Guys, we're a little over time. We, if you've never worshipped with us before, we usually don't go this late, but I think it was worth it. It's God's time anyway. Um, but before we go, I've got to do this. I just feel in my spirit that we have to do this. Um, bow your head, close your eyes with me for just a second. Is there anybody here today who would just, by raising your hand, say, I need to make Jesus my Savior. I need to experience what Cindy was talking about, a new identity. A wonderful life in Jesus Christ, an eternal life for eternity to be with Him. I want to repent of my sins. I want to turn from the wrong things I'm doing, and I want to turn to Him. If that's you today, would you just raise your hand? I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you, but I feel like I needed to give this opportunity. I see one hand. Is there anybody else who would say, I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life? Today's my day. I see another hand going up. Anybody else? Anybody else? Don't miss your moment. I see another hand. Anyone else? Another hand. Anybody else who would say, I need Jesus to be my Savior? Last call. Anyone else? Let's pray today. Father, thank you that you transform lives. Thank you that you call us out of the grave. Thank you that you put our feet on a rock and you put a new song in our mouth. Thank you for the salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ and his work. As so we leave this place, God, I pray that you would transform us more and more, that we would be more and more set free to love and to serve you. For those who raised their hand and said, I need Jesus in my life, God, I pray you would invade them, you would move into them, you would change them. God, you would push out anything that's holding them back. That, God, their sin would be left behind and they would be able to walk in freedom with you. Thank you for meeting with us today and thank you for blessing us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And Rushwood said together, amen. I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. We'll see you Wednesday night, Friday night, and next Sunday morning. God bless you. Thank you for being here. <laughs>